Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 35. This week, my introduction is going to be a little bit different. Some of you may have noticed this, but generally my interviews are recorded about four to six weeks before the episode actually releases, and sometimes even longer. Today's interview was recorded on March 17th, 2021. And I mention this because my guest Steve Jenowick and I talk a fair bit about his longtime friend and studio collaborator, Al Schmidt. A little more than a month later, on April 26th, Al passed away at the age of 91. Al will remain one of the most legendary and well-respected engineers of all time. During his career, he won 20 Grammys, as well as two Latin Grammys and a Lifetime Achievement Award. He worked with everyone from Frank Sinatra to Paul McCartney to Ray Charles and Bob Dylan. More importantly, he was an amazing person. He was a huge influence and an inspiration, both professionally and personally, for any person that ever worked at Capitol Studios, which is where he did a lot of his work. And I'm sure the same goes for every artist and musician that he ever worked with and any student that ever heard him speak. He made an uncountable number of amazing records that impacted millions of lives. And after his passing, there was an outpouring of beautiful tributes to his life from all around the world. So my small tribute to him is this. To ask you, my listeners, to think about the way you will walk through your career and the type of legacy you want to leave, not just as an artist, producer, or engineer, but as a person. Many of you are still in the early phases of your career. You're going to encounter successes and failures. Are you going to let them change you? Are you going to become cocky and arrogant or bitter and angry? Or will you stay true to who you are? You'll interact with thousands of people across the span of your career. How will they remember you? Will you be the selfish diva? Or will they remember you as the person that made everyone in the room better? The person that pushed everyone and inspired them? You'll find yourself working in teams. Will you be a good teammate? Or will you be an uninterested one? Will you be the silent lead-by-example person? Or will you be the outspoken leader that brings everyone together? You'll do gigs that you don't like. How will you do them? Will you do them with the same passion that you do your favorite projects? Or will you half-heartedly participate and cheat everyone out of the full experience of working with you. And you'll eventually feel you've mastered your craft, or that you've achieved your success. Will you then grow stagnant and ultimately bored? Or will you strive to continue learning? Will you explore new ideas and still find ways to innovate? Will you be a mentor and share your knowledge? Or will you fear being replaced? In my 15 years in working in studios, I can say that I've encountered all of the above. The music industry is a small world. And if you have a long career, you'll interact with a lot of it. People will remember you. You'll often be leaving an impact on the people you work with even when you don't realize it. 
You never know when you could be inspiring your assistant or your coworker or even your friend to do something better, to make a change. So on that, I'll leave you with something that Al Schmidt would close with every time he spoke somewhere. Please be kind to all living things. This week's guest is Grammy-nominated recording engineer and mixer Steve Jenowick. Steve has been a staff engineer at the world-renowned Capitol Studios since 1994. His credit list is so stacked that it's hard to even pick a shortlist. We've got Paul McCartney, Diana Krall, Beck, Niall Horan, Leanne Rimes, and Elvis Costello, just to name a few. Steve is also on the forefront of mixing music for the Dolby Atmos format, being one of the first studio engineers to do so. And he helped design the award-winning Capital Chambers plugin from Universal Audio. He's had an epic career to date, so let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Steve Jenowick. What's up, Steve? Hey, Travis. How you doing, man? Good. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. People should know that you were one of the guys that whipped me into shape when I was like a deer in the headlights <laughs> new guy at Capital. <laughs> I think I actually hired you. Potentially. I think I was, I think I was in on, uh, that's back when I was in on interviews and stuff. And <laughs> Well, thanks oh, for yeah. letting me in. But uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and then we then we sent you on your way, and you've done well. That's great. That's what we like to see. Is you know, people come through, and you know, not everybody has to stay forever like me. <laughs> I feel like that's where studios get. You know, their it's like their word of mouth. Like their guys leave, and and they come back, and they bring sessions, and they know they know where home is. So you know, yeah, we've always thought that when we hire people, we want them to stay, obviously. But if they don't we at least want them out in the world representing the studio well. You know, like, you're a capital guy. Great, you're a capital guy. You know, you're always a capital guy. So, yeah. Or girl. It's a great thing. So, now, I don't want to go too into too deep into this because I know you were just on uh, Working Class Audio and you talked a lot about Dolby Atmos. So, if anybody's mm -hmm. really interested, they should check out Matt's show. <laughs> it's great. But what's up with Dolby Atmos? Just because I don't know. So, you have to tell me, like, what's the deal? You're mixing records in, in Atmos now? Mixing records in Dolby Atmos. So the short answer, to, or the long answer to a very short question. So obviously it, it was developed for films, you know, so helicopters can fly over your head and bullets can fly past your ears and all that kind of stuff. But so we took that very same technology and started mixing records, albums, not necessarily albums, but but songs. So I've been doing it for about three, I guess almost four years now. You know, the last year has kind of been a blur, but... So yeah, I've I've done a few hundred songs at this point, I think. Oh wow. It's really fun. I really love it. It was a great challenge when it first started because we had to learn new technology and all this stuff and and kind of figure out how we were going to do it and what worked and what didn't. And that was kind of challenging and fun. But yeah, it, it's really cool. I really love it. It's it's, you know, if you've never heard it, it's a great way to listen to music. It's just it's so much fun and and done well. It's very compelling and it draws you in and you know, it, it it's it's really great. Yeah, I love it. I've only uh, I've only been been over to see once or Studio C at Capitol once or twice since you guys did the Atmos install in there and I heard something. What was Probably that Rocket it's, Rocket Man? <laughs> I think yeah, I think it was Rocket Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we kind of start with. Yeah. <laughs> you you talked about you guys had to figure out what works and what doesn't work. What was that process like for everybody involved? Well, it was kind of me involved at the start. <laughs> the way it evolved, they just, you know, we built the room and they handed me this record and went, the band's coming in two weeks, figure it out. <laughs> so it was me, you know, at that time, a lot of the tools for Atmos were very post-centric. So, you know, if you wanted a, an Atmos reverb to, you know, 
be in a parking garage or in a closet or whatever it was that was there but you know a really good plate wasn't so i had to figure out how to you know how am i going to build reverbs how am i going to use delays stuff like that and then you know how do i not necessarily move stuff around the room but get stuff to sit in the room and make it immersive and feel like you were inside of it but not make it but still keep some clarity and definition and stuff like that and you know what works as far as how to put where to put vocals and 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 bass and stuff like that my basic thing at the beginning was how do i use all these speakers but still keep stuff localized when i wanted it to be there right how do i put a vocal in a bunch of speakers but still keep it in the front and in the middle yeah you know stuff like that and that was just trial and error you know walking around the room I do a lot of walking around the room in Studio C. <laughs> Lots of walking around the room, sitting in the back, sitting in the front, you know. I mean, a little less now, but at that time it was it took a while. So, how are artists are they jumping on board? Are they interested? Are they disturbed? How's that panning out if you are willing to say? <laughs> so, there's two things. One we we have kind of a rule of thumb is when you bring an artist in to approve, never ever play them their record first. Always play them something else, get them acquainted with it. Usually we start with Rocket Man, move through some stuff, and then we hit them with their record. Okay. I, to my knowledge, as far as Universal is concerned, there was one artist who absolutely didn't like any of it, said no. And since then, that artist has come around. Okay. Other than that, I have not had one artist that wasn't jumping up and down for joy and wondering why everything wasn't like this. And, you know, I want to do my new record this way and everything else. So I've, nice. I've never had an artist that hated it. That's awesome. Okay, so yeah. last nerd question about Atmos. What's the end goal consumer-wise? How is it going to get into people's ears? So right now, as we speak today, Amazon and Tidal stream Dolby Atmos music. Oh, wow. Amazon streams into their devices, which is the Studio Echo, and I believe the the Amazon Fire Stick. Okay. So if you have one of those Amazon-enabled devices, you can listen to Dolby Atmos music. Tidal will stream into whatever you have. So if you have a very large home theater system, you can do that. You can do sound bars. You can do smart speakers. There's also a binaural component. So there's a headphone, you know, and, and it, the experience is a little bit different in headphones, but but it's there and it's, I think it's better than stereo personally. Cool. And I guess yeah. I might be wrong, but the deal with Atmos is that it, it kind of, it works to fit the space, right? It decodes to a certain extent itself. Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's not channel based or speaker based. It's what they call object based. So I just have a little ball in the panner and I put it where I want it in the room. And then whatever room you're in and whatever playback system you have and however many speakers you have your system decodes how to get it to that spot in the room if there's a speaker there it'll put it in the speaker if there's no speaker there it figures out how to you know triangulate it through the speakers it does have that's awesome so like in studio c we have 20 speakers in studio e upstairs it's a little bit smaller of a system so we have i think 16 speakers up there okay here at my house now i have a 712 system but I can play the exact same mix on all of those systems. Now, obviously, the definition, the clarity, the, the location is going to be better in Studio C because there's more speakers. So if I put something in the top front, 
Well, in Studio C, I have top front speakers, so it'll come out the top front. In my room, I only have two speakers, so it just comes out the top. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That sounds, uh, this would never be a true statement, but that sounds pretty damn future-proof, just the concept of what that's built on. That's kind of the idea. All right, so the the Dolby Atmos nerdery is out of the way for, for <laughs> me. We can talk more about it later. But um, how's pandemic been for you? Had, we have to talk about it because everybody talks about it. You can't avoid it anymore. Of course. <laughs> yeah, it's still going on, unfortunately. Yes, um, pandemic ending. for me has actually not been bad. Um, oh? You know, we shut down. It's It was a year ago, what, Saturday something? I think it oh, was wow. March, okay. yeah, it March 13th yeah. when we shut it down. For about a week or a week and a half before then at Capitol, we had, you know, this kind of was kind of ramping up the pandemic thing. And we had, we meaning the staff and whoever, you know, management had made the decision to not have attended sessions. So we were all working in the building, but we didn't have clients coming in, doing a lot of Atmos mixing, stuff like that. And then I remember I went home on a Thursday night and by the time I walked in my door, the phone was ringing and emails and, you know, they're shutting the world down. The city's shutting down. We have to close the building. And they said, well, you can come in tomorrow and finish what you were doing on Friday. So basically I went in, I finished what I was doing. And while I was finishing what I was doing, I was copying as much stuff as I could. You know, anything I thought I might have to work on, I just made copies of onto a drive. And I threw some of my equipment that I have there into the car, you know, speakers and preamps. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. So I just took what I could. And then uh, Dave Clark and I went around and shut down the consoles and the amps and the, turned off the lights and locked the doors and walked out of the building and didn't go back till what it was like July or August, I think. Oh, so man. Yeah. It's an eerie feeling to walk into a studio where the console's off. Anybody, for anybody that's worked in a studio... There's always those lights. And when you walk in and they're not on, it's usually a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. When the room goes completely dark, like there's no lights on amps or any, yeah, it's it's like being in a cave, first of all, because there's like no light. It's <laughs> totally. really spooky. But that being said, we were in the middle of, I was Al and I were in the middle of a, this Melody Gardot album. You know, we were scheduled to fly to London in like the first week of April and do these big orchestra sessions and then mix the record and... And I had a few other things, another record I was working on. And so within, you know, that was a Friday. By the Wednesday after that, I had a full-blown Atmos 7-1 rig in my living room. So I've, I've had a studio at my house for a while, but it was just a little studio in this little office nook area we have, just stereo, small speakers. And I would do small projects in there and, you know. It was a working studio, but certainly wasn't anything like this. And and my wife was actually the one who said, look, you know, nobody's coming and you have to work. So why don't we just move the furniture out of the living room? And uh, we pushed, I have a piano. I pushed that off to the side <laughs> and <laughs> took away the couch and all that kind of stuff. And I just set up the speakers and started working. So I would say within within three to four days of the studio being shut down, I was up and running. And, you know, learning how to use audio movers and this thing called Zoom, which I had never heard of before. And, <laughs> you know, how is this going to work? And we kept going on that Melody Gardot record. Larry Klein was the producer and Larry was at his studio here in L.A. And Melody was actually in Paris and her manager was in London and Al was at his house. And, you know, we all learned how to hook up and get it done. That's awesome. 
Yeah. Eventually, Abbey Road opened up a few months later and we were able to do the orchestra stuff, which was kind of the last things we had to do. Okay. And we did that remotely. We didn't go there, obviously. Can I interject on Abbey uh-huh. Road? I saw some of their pictures where they had everybody spread out. And I know you've worked there multiple times. Did it sound different? Yes, it did. It did. In a, in a in an interesting way? It was just, no, it was uh, noticeable. It was noticeable. Yeah. We were actually the first session. Oh, back. amazing. Yeah. And they, you know, in the discussions before, it was like, yeah, everybody's kind of spread out and they're all wearing masks, you know, and the engineers that were there doing it, they were like, sorry, guys, we're using way more mics than we normally would. And, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it was different. It wasn't, I won't say it was bad, you know, but it definitely sounded different. It, it was not, I mean, I wouldn't choose to do it that way. It's not <laughs> like we have this great new way. Like if we spread everybody out, it sounds better. Right. But I don't think it hurt anything. Okay. I think some of the players had more problems with it, especially in some of the bigger sessions, because suddenly, you know, woodwind players were miles away, (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) So it was a little more difficult, I think, for the players to get pitch references and timing references and stuff like that when people they're playing with were, you know, miles away from them and they should have been kind of right next to them. That is true. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think it was harder for them than it was for us. Okay. But much easier than the, you know, the, the pandemic orchestra where everybody plays at home in their living room and sends it to you. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, again, we did one of the melody songs we did like that. And it literally took me a week to put together an orchestra and get it all timed and the levels right and get it to sound, you know, build a room for it and, and all that. It was, you know, something that should have taken an hour with everybody in one room took a week. Yeah. It's amazing how much they play as a unit. You know, and you need that whole thing. It's it's not, it's the sound of the room and everybody in the room playing it. That's, you know, people don't understand that's what strings and, and orchestras sound like. It's it's the players. Like when you stand in Studio A at Capitol, that was one of my favorite things to do was to, you know, we'd go through and pull all the headphones or move a microphone. And while they're, you know, rehearsing the first take, you're just like, whoa, this sounds so epic in here. Like everybody should be able to stand that close to an orchestra once. Oh, Totally. Or in front of a big band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, take a big band to the face right there, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but it's also the things, it's like, it's the conductor too. It's, you know, articulating dynamics. Yeah. You know, everybody's dynamic changes a little bit different. When they're all sitting in the room, they all kind of do it together. Or how they articulate, you know, a triplet or something like that. You know, how are you going to, is it bop, 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 or is it bop, 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 you know, like, I mean, you can only write so much on a piece of paper. It's true. Yeah. And a conductor, you know, can, he has a lot more control, I think, than people think he does over an orchestra. Yeah. And when you don't have that suddenly, then it comes to somebody like me or you and we have to fix all that stuff, you know. It's not that, it's not that it was played wrong. It was just interpreted differently. Yeah. I've done a a few uh, Zoom concerts where everybody recorded separately, you know, like vocals and different things and putting those things together over the pandemic yeah. has been, uh, takes a minute. <laughs> Get paid by the hour, man. No offense to the clients <laughs> listening that I did that for. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Well, again, it, it's just, it's interpretation. Yeah. It's not that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that they're, in, everybody's interpreting it a different way. And individually, without the reference of the other person, you're, you know, a band, a band's a band because they're all in the same room, you know, that's exactly what it all comes down to. Well, since we're yeah. talking about orchestras, those are such high intensity sessions. I don't think people understand how how expensive big band sessions and 
union string sessions, film scoring sessions with all those players, all that time, very strict, like union time schedules. And I've watched you with the other guys at Capitol, Al Schmidt, who you work with all the time, just sit there, just unfazed. How, how did you get to that point? Do you have any tips for people on how to become rock hard under pressure like that in the control room? Yeah, be prepared. You know, Al and I are there or whoever it is, we're there hours before that session starts. If it's something like the Oscars, you know, we have a whole day to set it up and get it working. And, you know, Tommy Vicari is there with us the day before and and we always try to find out what it, what's the instrumentation, what's it for, um, you know, what's the end product? Is it a record? Is it a movie? Is it supposed to sound old-timey? Is it supposed to sound very modern? Do we want it to sound really close or do you want it, you know, um, very theatrical? So we kind of get all that stuff as much as we can up front. And then we set the room up or somebody sets the room up for us. And then we come in in the morning and we, we check and double check everything. Make sure all the mics are working, make sure they're all in phase, make sure the headphones are working, make sure every single headphone is working. You know, I mean, you've done it, I've done it. You walk around that orchestra and pick up 50 sets of headphones and make sure that click is banging away. And, you know, because when you find that one, you know, it takes you 30 seconds to change it you know, two hours before the session, but it's a disaster when it happens on the session when suddenly oh, the yeah. third vi viola is going, my headphones don't work. You know, it, it's everything stops. And the last thing you want is for everything to stop. So I would say most of it is preparation, being prepared. You know, at this point, we've done it a million times. I'll always say, you know, it may look like we have ice in our blood, <laughs> but it's not that way. <laughs> you know, I'm always staring at that Pro Tools rig, making sure that I don't see that little spinning ball all of a sudden and, you know. But yeah, we all have our jobs, so everybody has to do their job. If my job is the, to be the Pro Tools operator, I'm worried about my job and I'm not worried about the other guy's job so much. Yeah. We have a great staff at Capital, you know, so I don't have to worry about, you know, again, the stuff that's going on in the room, the headphone, do you have a headphone extension? My thing doesn't work. I need a new stand light. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. We have people out there that can worry about it. You know, the technical stuff has been worked out beforehand. So the majority of that and that kind of session is to be prepared. Yeah. That's what I wanted to touch on about Capital is there is, I mean, maybe one or two other studios that I've been to that can compete on that level of preparedness and just efficiency and the, just the teamwork aspect of how you guys run everything is just epic. You know, people would not come there to do the sessions that they do if it wasn't run the way that it's run. And the people that work there for so long, like yourself or the people that leave eventually like me, they're so prepared because of that, you know, that's ingrained in everybody. And the, the teamwork mm -hmm. aspect is pretty impressive. Yeah. No record, no movie gets made by one person. No. Somebody's name is on there as the recording engineer, but there are a lot of people. And yeah, you're right. There's only a handful of places kind of in the world that, that function that way. And the fun thing about Capital is, you know, you know, we pride ourselves in we can do anything. To me, that's the fun part. It's, you know, you're doing a movie score one day and you're doing a rock album the next day and a live TV show the day after that, you know, whatever it is. It's, it's so much different. Oh, yeah. Which keeps everybody kind of on their toes every genre the label always mm -hmm. leans on on you guys for can we do this and yeah. the answer is yes and we'll solve that problem when we get to exactly it. 
That's so, all for the answer. The answer is always yes. The, exactly. The answer is always <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to talk about how you got into recording. We kind of, we not really going through your career. So let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> Were you a musician? How'd you end up in the, in the recording seat? I was a really bad musician. <laughs> you know, I started playing guitar in high school and was never really that good and never liked to practice and that kind of stuff. But I had friends that were in bands and and I was hanging out and, you know, I, I always liked it. I liked being around music and around musicians. And But I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be that guy. So if you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Somehow I gravitated. I remember friends' bands and being in a little demo studio and just watching the engineer like, wow, like, this dude's got it together, man. He's, you know, I don't know if he was good or not. I don't even remember where the studio was. It was a small studio, but... You know, it had a console and a patch bay and all that kind of stuff. And, okay. and this guy was working his ass off, I will say. And it just intrigued me just watching him work. And uh, so I kind of got into it, you know, and figured that might be something that I could do. And at the time, you know, the recording schools weren't like it is now. They weren't on every corner. There was a recording school in town that I found. And I enrolled and was learning. And because I had never, I didn't come from the, you know, guy with the four track in his bedroom trying to figure it out. Like, I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know, I mean, I knew what an EQ did, but I didn't really know how it did what it did. I didn't know about compression. I didn't know about signal flow. And, you know, I kind of knew that that stuff existed, but I didn't know what it was or how to do it. So, right. so for me, even though the school at that time wasn't great, I did have some really good teachers. The program itself was a little skewed. But I was learning the basics. You know, I was learning how a compressor works, what an EQ does, what's, you know, what does this do? What is it, how, how a microphone works, the difference between a dynamic mic and a condenser mic and all that kind of stuff. And then there was a guy that sat next to me in, in my morning class. It was actually Bobby Osinski was my teacher in this class. And he was the night runner at a studio called Cherokee, which was on Fairfax, which is is no longer at that location. They've since reopened a different location. But And he came in one morning and told me that he got fired because he did something stupid and what he did was stupid. And I was like, really? So they need somebody? And he was like, yeah, dude, you should go get the job. And I literally got up and walked out of class and went home and <laughs> you know put on a clean shirt and grabbed my resume and went over to the studio and walked in and said, I heard you guys need a guy. They were like, how did you hear? I was like, well, he sits next to me in class and blah, blah, blah. And they went, okay, well, when can you start? And I said, well, when do you need me? And they said, four o'clock. And I said, okay, fine. And that was it. I was in. I was the night guy. So once you learn where everything is, suddenly you're just there from midnight to eight in the morning, you know, cleaning up and right. cleaning ashtrays and cleaning toilets and stuff like that. But, you know, doing runs, it was, you know, but it was fun. I was meeting people. I was in the studio you know, they were a big facility. We had five rooms, so lots of people around. Oh, wow. Yeah, lots of like, you know, early hip hop and kind of hard rock stuff. But then we would get the occasional movie, you know, 
Rod Stewart, stuff like that. So it was really fun. And I worked there for like three years, you know, made, made my way up to assistant, met some really good friends, friends I still have today. And then at some point it ran its course and, you know, I had to leave because they took my keys away. And then I did live sound for a while. And, and then I ran into uh, Bill Smith at Molly Malone's one night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we worked together at Cherokee and Bill had gotten a job at Capitol. And I, when I ran into him that night, he was like, hey, man, we had a guy that left today. He just up and quit. You should come get the job. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I, I'm having fun going out on the road. He was like, no, no, this is different. And he sat me down over a couple of beers and convinced me that Capital was the place I should go. Nice. I went in the next day and asked for the right guy, and he came out, and he said, how do you know I need a guy? I said, oh, I ran into Bill. He said, hang on, stay here for a minute. I was in the front lobby. And uh, it was Michael Frondelli who ran the studio at the time. And unbeknownst to me, Michael went down to Bill and said, who the hell is this guy? And he went, Steve, you should hire him. He's good. <laughs> so Michael came back up, and he said, all right, when, when can you start? And I said, when do you need me? And he said, four o'clock. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, four o'clock is when the four to midnight shift starts. So that's what that's all about. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I went home and canceled everything I had. And at four o'clock, I was back at Capitol. And within a week, I was the night setup guy, you know? And at that time, we only had three setup guys. So I was doing midnight to eight in the morning, or, you know, f it was four to 12, which ended up being four to like five in the morning. Oh, yeah. You know, because yeah. we were doing those big setups and you're doing it by yourself. Yeah. You know, it took a while. It was changing orchestras like every night, taking oh. down strings, putting up strings. It was, it was a lot of work, but it was fun. Yeah. You know? And then eventually, you know, you work your way up and you start helping the assistants and all that kind of stuff. Because I had been assistant already at another place, you know, I, I moved through that stuff pretty quick and, and was put on sessions pretty quickly as an assistant. And then, and then at some point, Bill was Al's assistant. You know, it came time for Bill to leave and, and go do his own thing. And I had been around them so much that it was kind of a natural fit. So it was almost like Bill left one day and I just showed up the next day and we kept going. And then I was working with Al and then we just kept working and I just worked, you know? And <laughs> next thing you know, it was like 20 years later and Al and I had been working together. <laughs> so, and over that time, you know, I had gotten my own clients and, you know, obviously had been working with other guys when Al wasn't working, stuff like that. But, but for the most part, I was spending probably 80% of my time with Al. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. You guys were yeah. always working. I wanted to talk about that because you guys have worked together for so long and done so many projects. I wanted to talk about the aspect of like collaboration in that sense. So you'd already built a little bit of trust with Al from being at Capital, but as mm -hmm. you got more responsibility, you know, as you guys worked together longer, how did that work? What's your collaboration look like now compared to when you started? It's funny because when I took over from Bill was right at the time that Pro Tools was coming around. Pro Tools had been around, but it was right when the HD system was coming out. Okay. And once the HD system came out, that's when Al decided it sounded good, you know, it, it, because it's true. It didn't sound great before then. Yeah. So that's when he decided, okay, I think we can start using this now. And, you know, let's get rid of the tape machines and let's start doing this. And, and it took a little while for us to basically convince the clients that we should ditch the tape machines and use this newfangled computer thing. <laughs> so just because of that, the job of being Al's assistant changed a little bit. Okay. Because suddenly I was the guy running the computer. You know, I always say Al knows exactly what that computer does. Al knows what Pro Tools does. 
he doesn't really want to know the ins and outs of, you know, every single keystroke and all that kind of stuff. He knows what he needs to know to get around a mix. Yeah. You know, start, stop, navigate. He can go to where he wants to go. He can look at the tracks. He can do all that kind of stuff. He doesn't want to know about installing plugins and, you know, editing the editing. He didn't, he doesn't want to do that stuff. Yeah. You know, that's my job. So in the early days, it, it obviously changed right then and there because the workflow changed a little bit. But then over time, it was just, you know, I started to know what he wanted and, and I could anticipate what he wanted and, and he got to trust me more. So, you know, I mean, I probably told you, I tell all the guys, like, don't ever do what I do on an Al Schmidt session as an assistant. Like, don't, you'd never reach over and grab a compressor setting. You know, you, you just don't do that. But I will at times. You right. Because Al's doing something else and I just lean over and go, he doesn't want that. I know he doesn't want it like that. Yeah. You know, and I'll just set it. Or, or we're getting sounds and, you know, he's balancing one thing with the preamps and I'm doing something with a compressor over here or, or, you know, usually I'm sitting next to the preamps and I'm looking at the console so I can just reach over and grab the, you know, I, I know they're too hot. I can see they're too hot. He doesn't have to turn and tell me that. I just turn them down. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know. So it's become very fluid over time, which is great. And then I would always play, like my little game when we were mixing was I wanted to get in early and kind of, get a mix set up. I mean, I didn't go too far. I wasn't EQing and automating and stuff like that, but I would come in and get a balance together. And my little thing was, I'm going to put this together. And then when he comes in, I want to see what he changes or yeah. how he changes it to get it to where he wants it. And so that was kind of my little, my little game with myself, like, you know, how to learn how, how he would do things by, by trying to do it first and then see what he changed. Yeah. That, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just everybody in the studio knows the importance of being one step ahead, but you've taken it to the next level over the span of like 20 years that, you know, you guys are not working as one, but kind of working as, as, one, of. as one unit. Yeah. yeah. Does that make the output faster? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It makes everything kind of easier, you know. I mean, there's times where especially like if we're setting stuff up or if there's questions or whatever, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to call him for every little thing. I can just, yeah, yeah, we don't have one of these. Fine, put one of those up. You know, I don't have to, I know what he's going to ask for. You're right. You know, so. You know what the substitutions are. Yeah. And then we have, you know, we have fun too because, you know, he'll, he'll come in one day and say, let's do something different today. Let's try a different mic on the vocal you know, or whatever, because he's always, or, you know, we got these new mics, Audio-Technica sent us these new mics, let's try them. Yeah. Or sometimes it's it's me going, hey, Al, I, I did a session last week and I didn't have the 67s and I tried this and it sounded really good. And we'll kind of put that in our brains and the next time it comes up, you know, he may say, hey, remember you told me about that mic? What was that? Let's try that. Let's get it. So we're kind of, we kind of help each other too. And nowadays with the computer, you know, some of the stuff like Isotope and, and, you know, there's stuff we can, problems we can solve in Pro Tools that can't really be solved in the analog domain. Yeah. So there's times where he'll push up a fader and he'll just look at me and go, can you fix that? And I go, yeah, give me a second. And I just fix it. Again, he knows it can be done. He doesn't need to know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's when he just goes, all right, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee, fix that. <laughs> <And> <laughs> how much time do you need? Yeah, exactly. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. 
So or there's you know there's times where he's he'll get stuck on something and he'll be like you sit down you listen to this and you tell me what you think <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean everybody has those times on mixes where it's like you just get a little frazzled or whatever or unsure about something and you know and I may say I don't know maybe the bass is too loud or something like that. you know I mean I'm I'm honest with him now at this point too yeah. so if he asks me a question I'll, I'll, you know he's asking me because he wants my opinion so yeah there was uh, one day I think I was I was filling in for you. He was doing it was just a mixed day. I don't know. You weren't there that one day. He was mixing and Al turned around, he looked at me and he said, Is it how's it sound? Does it sound good? And I'm I'm sitting there, I'm like, Yeah, yeah, it does. And he <laughs> looks back at the console and then he looks back at me and he's like, You tell me the truth, right? It was just it yeah. caught me off guard and I was like, Oh, you you were actually you you wanna know? It's, um mm-hmm. but yeah, I loved watching watching you guys work. He's he's a master, so I can imagine the stories and the stuff you've taken away after, I mean, all those records. You guys have flown around the world. Oh, yeah. You've done Mixed with the Masters. You guys did that uh, Art of the Big Band DVD that, mm-hmm. you know, nobody knows how to record a big band anymore. I mean, kids need to watch that so they so they know that that's a thing. That Yeah. The DVD was kind of a, an afterthought. We didn't go into that process to make a DVD. We It was just a master class we were doing one weekend. Oh, that's right. Um, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Had we known we were making a DVD, we probably would have done it a little differently and, and actually kind of explained stuff a little bit different and, and all that. But so it's a little bit, you know, if you watch the DVD, it's almost like being a fly on the wall. Yeah. There's a ton of information in there if you pay attention. Yeah. And that's kind of how working at a studio is. You know, I mean, you know, you did it. I did it. Nobody sits there and goes, all right, kid, come here. I'm going to show you how this console works. You know, you have to kind of take it upon yourself to to learn it. Now, if somebody comes to me and says, "Can you show me how this works?" Obviously, I'm going to sit down and show them how it works. You know, I'm I'm an open book. I'll help anybody through anything. Yeah. But it's not my job necessarily to be your teacher at the studio. It's your job to figure out how to get the knowledge. And a lot of times it's just watching. I mean, I've learned more from Al just watching him work. Oh yeah. He's never said to me, "This is how I do this." It's I just watch him and mimic it at yeah. times. There's been times where, he, where we've been mixed with the masters and he's been explaining stuff and I was like, wow, I had no idea that's how you thought about that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I knew he did it, but I didn't know that's why he did it. Right. You know, or whatever. That's amazing. Well, do you have an opinion on, like you're a kid graduating engineering school. Like you, n- not you, but for somebody mm-hmm. like that, you went to school for a while, you learned the basics of how things worked, you knew nothing, and then you went in the studio, you learned in the real world. I feel like that real world is shrinking for a lot of people that want to learn like the art of recording in the way that you know the art of recording. Like you know things about recording that a lot of people are never going to encounter. So if you're one of those kids that wants to do what Steve does, what Al does, what do you do? I think you, at some point, you got to get into a studio. You know, now the idea of mentors now has changed. Well, first of all, rewinding. I think when you're going to school, I think... All schools should start with analog tape and a console and outboard compressors and start nowhere near a computer with the caveat of you will never, ever have to do this. You will never have to work this way. Don't worry about it. You're not going to have to do it. But if you learn how this tape machine and that console and that compressor and that EQ work, it's going to make looking at the computer make a lot more sense because that's what it's based on. Yeah. I've had questions where I was like, people ask me questions about a console and I was like, what does, oh, because you've never seen a console. You know, how many insert points does this console have? One. 
Like, <laughs> oh, right, because you're thinking Pro Tools. Right. You know. So, yeah, I, I think you have to learn the basics, obviously. If you can find a mentor, that's great. You know, work for an engineer, be somebody's assistant. That's always going to be the best way to learn. But now there are some really good resources, too. Stuff like Mix with the Masters and Pure Mix and and those kind of things. There's a lot of really good information in there. You have to be careful because the internet is full of a lot of really bad information, <laughs> like really bad information. <laughs> some of the stuff I read on some of the forums and stuff is just wild, you know. I mean, there was one instance a while back where some guy, it was probably on Gear Sluts because that's how, how long ago it was, but somebody was talking about a record that Al and I had done and somebody explained Al's well, Al must be doing this with the reverb. And the what he explained, <laughs> I mean, Al and I read it, and we couldn't follow what he was explaining, let alone come up with that on our own. You know, it was like, oh, he must be high-passing this, and then he's doing this, and this is going into that, and that. And it was like, dude, it's a 480 on a stock setting. Like, get over it. <laughs> like, so... <laughs> So to make a long story long, yeah, it, it, it's there is some really good information out there, but make sure you're getting it from people who actually know what they're doing. And yeah. then work. I mean, the the great part about learning this nowadays is, you know, you can have Pro Tools on your laptop. You can have Reaper on your laptop or whatever it is. You don't need a studio, a tape machine, a console, all that kind of stuff. You know, you can you can download, you know, you can get files off the internet, you know, legally, hopefully. And uh, and you have stock plugins that that are really good. I mean, you know, for a very small investment, you can have basically a full-blown studio up and running on your laptop and yeah. a pair of headphones. And you can learn and you can do it. You know, I always tell, you know, young engineers, the greatest thing you have is save as. You do a save as, you pull all the faders down and you start over again and figure out how to do it a different way, you know. So the tools that are available now are, are absolutely unbelievable. Oh, yeah. The thought that I can have an Atmos rig in my living room that was that wasn't happening 25 30 years ago no definitely definitely not uh well along those lines i mean i guess you've already answered this i was going to ask you if you, do you still like seek new stuff do you still learn do you still practice but you basically had to learn atmos a couple years ago so you do mm -hmm. do you ever feel stale and then actively go somewhere you try something try something new absolutely all yeah. the time all the time yeah i'm always trying something new always looking for new stuff you know i'm always like trying to keep up on new plugins and all that kind of, I may not use them, but I'm always trying to know at least what's out there. There's some stuff I don't want to do. <laughs> um, you know, if I never have to tune another vocal again, I'd be fine with that. But, you know, it's what we do sometimes. So, yeah, I'm always trying to stay current, stay ahead. You know, there's times, you know, I, I, I watch the Mix with the Masters videos. I watch the Pure Mix videos. I listen to podcasts. You know, I'm trying to keep up with what, you know, a lot of, of what's hard nowadays, especially during a pandemic, but just in general, because studios are going away, is you don't see your peers anymore. Yeah. People are at home, you know, mixing in their bedrooms. And, you know, one of the great things about Capital is the doors are almost always open and you can kind of wander in. You know, if Al and I are doing a big band record, you know, people will just wander in from Studio B or Studio C and stand there and watch. And that's cool. We, we don't care. I mean, some obviously some clients do care, but yeah. But you can just wander over and, and meet people and, and see what they're doing and, and talk and compare notes, you know, with other engineers and stuff like that. And that's really hard to do nowadays. Yeah. Well, along those lines, related to that, two questions. One being, 
what do you think people need to do to keep that community? Because kids that are, are coming up, especially in this era, they don't know what you're talking about, about the open door policies and people, they don't, they've never experienced that. Do you have any ideas of how people can, can do that when they can't get into a big studio? Well, there is stuff like, you know, online forums and stuff like that. You just have to be aware of who's on those and what kind of information they're giving you. <laughs> you know, I would, I would hope even though the big studios are closing, what I'm starting to see are like other facilities that are building like production type rooms. Yeah. You know, I think if you can, if you can get out of your bedroom, living room, whatever it is, even if you just take your studio and put it in a different place, you know, where other people might be, obviously not everybody can do that. That costs money and that kind of stuff. But again, when the world opens up again, get out and go to shows and meet people and and go hang out. You know, it's, I think we have to find a way to keep doing that. Oh yeah. to, To keep the interaction. So yeah, it's a tough thing. Yeah. I would highly suggest everybody try to work at a studio, at least for a little while. Yes. Yeah. If you're considering being an engineer or a producer, you should definitely get in there because there's so much to take away. Yeah. You're never going to learn how a session actually runs. The only way is to be in a room and watch it happen. You know, you learn a lot by standing in the back. Yeah. The real world is always (laughs) the ultimate teacher. Since we were kind of talking about the pandemic again, how do you see this? You mentioned studios closing. Do you think recording really changes on the other side of this work from home realm? Do you think people are going to keep working from home or are they going to run back to to rooms? I think it's going to be both. There's a lot of stuff that we've learned we can do remotely that doesn't require a studio, that doesn't require getting on an airplane, stuff like that. I think we're also learning that there's a lot of stuff that shouldn't be done at home. (laughs) That yes, we can do it, but it's not great. You know, yes, Mr. Sax player can play the sax part at his house, but it's so much better and so much easier if everybody just goes to the studio for, you know, two hours and gets it exactly right. You know, you don't have to go back and forth, stuff like that. So I think, yes, there's going to be stuff on the other side of the pandemic that stays the same as it is during lockdown. But I think hopefully, and I think that, that we'll go back to some semblance of normalcy or what we call that. And, you know, there's always going to be a place for big studios. Yeah. You're always going to need them. And it's always going to be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even not so much a big studio, but even any studio. I mean, having having people in the room together playing music is really what it's all about. Yeah. Couldn't imagine. Well, I guess I have imagined sitting in my, in one room for a year doing the same thing over and over again. And, as much as there are good parts about it, you know, I'm home, I'm with my family. I don't have, you know, an hour and a half of driving to do every day, stuff oh, yeah. like that. So part of that has been really nice. But then again, you know, I miss seeing the musicians every day and and doing that kind of stuff, you know. In the last month or so, I've been at studios more and it's just been so much fun. I mean, on Monday, I did an entire album with a jazz trio. I mean, like done. Recorded, right. we did it straight live to two track. All of us were just so excited to be in the room with people playing music. It was great. You know, obviously we had masks and that kind of stuff, but yeah. but we were there, you yeah. know, and, and it was fun, man. It was, was probably an energy that, that you captured because everybody was so stoked to be out of their house. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and that energy, even in normal times, you're never going to get the same energy with people playing remotely as you are 
with people playing in the same room. Yes. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a musician who would tell you anything different. Yeah. Uh, last question-ish. You've done a million things. Is there something that you're excited that you haven't done that you want to do? Ooh, that I haven't done? I don't know. You know, I've had the opportunity to do an awful lot. So again, that, that that's the fun part about Capital is, you know, we're always doing a lot of stuff. I'm kind of, I've been doing a lot more like... I've been working with some composers doing video games and, and some film projects and stuff like that. And I'm kind of enjoying that a lot. That's cool. So I'm kind of spinning stuff in that direction a little more than I had before. It's not, you know, not, I never want to stop making records, but I think there's, there's something in that area that I'd like to explore a little bit more, even though I've done it in the past, I'd, I'd like to, you know, flex that muscle a little bit more. I think it's also a, uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to make pop records with 17 year olds, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not my, not my people right now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm certainly willing to help them, Yeah. (laughs) you know, and I don't think the 17 year olds want the 50 year old guy sitting in the room, shaking his head at what they're doing. (laughs) Like, why are we singing through autotune? Don't do that. You know, you can't sing through autotune. So last question for you. Uh, So I end every show the same way. And that is, what right now is your current biggest goal that you're able and willing to share? And what's the next smallest step you're going to do to go towards it? Next small step is finish the session I just printed. Because <laughs> <laughs> now you have to print stems for everything. Long term, uh, you know, it's, it's keep, keep doing what I'm doing. I'm curious to see how we come out of this pandemic and where it lands us, you know, because the business has changed mm. a bit. In as far as, you know, people are doing things differently and people are in different positions and stuff like that. Um, and how how studios and the, and the recording business kind of get back into the swing of things. Yeah. For me, I mean, we kind of touched on it before. I'm, I'm kind of more interested in the movies and video game and, and that kind of stuff. You know, I'm going to keep going with this Dolby thing, this Atmos thing. It's, it's really fun and I really like it. So that's kind of the direction I'm headed in right now. Cool. That's awesome. Steve, this has been this has been great. I love this, man. It was good to catch up. Uh, do you want to share websites or socials with anybody? They can find you, find Capital. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, you know, Capital Studios. We have the website there, CapitalStudios.com. My personal website, SteveGenowick.com, has you know pictures and fun stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Facebook, you know, personal Facebook is personal, but I have a, a an artist page, Steve Genowick, recording engineer that I post on. Don't really do Twitter. I'm not that hard to find. Amazing. <laughs> He'll pop up in Google. Of, yeah, there's some stuff in Google. You know, there's all kinds of videos and stuff that I've done for the label and for other people, the studio that I'm out there. But you can always send me an email or a message. Well, Steve, thanks, man. It was good hanging. Thank you so much yeah, for coming on. great hang. It's been cool. a while. So that's it for episode 35. Thanks to Steve Genowick for taking the time to come on the show, and thanks to all of you for listening. Please, if you have been enjoying the show, consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, or maybe texting a link to a friend of yours that you think might also enjoy it. It would mean so much, and I'd greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net and get in on the conversation over there. And with that, I'll see you next week.